Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The word of the Lord. Father, thank you for our church. Thank you for the chance to be here together and to hear your word. Thank you for giving us your word that is a light to our path. I pray that you would guide us in it. I pray that this complex text would begin to make some sense and that we would leave with some things to think about, to consider, and that you would even apply some of this to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this, yeah, this scripture this evening is known as one of the most perplexing in the Bible, or so some people say. And this is because it, it breaks some of the rules of interpreting the Bible. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend a little time on this early. And I, I actually contemplated doing this really quick and spending a lot more time on kind of applying what this might mean. But I actually, I actually decided to spend a little more time and kind of why this is complex to help work that out for you so that you could walk away not just saying kind of Andy says so, but I hope understanding what, what's going on here. So it, this seems to break the rules uh, in our minds, and it, can, it contains these themes that are very current. You saw persecution in there. Um, that's something that, you know, currently probably I haven't heard as much about persecution in my life uh, as I have in the last two years among Christians. That, that would be among Christians, just this talk of like, we're being persecuted right now, or we might be in the future. I'm not going to spend as much time on that one, um, but I do hope that you, you think about that word in the context of what we're saying here and ask, what does that really mean? Um, on top of that, there's the, the idea of freedom in Galatians 5.1, which is the last verse that was read. And we'll touch on that again next week, but this question of freedom, what, what is that? exactly what does that mean to the Christian is a big conversation. Um, and I think it's really important. What does it mean to have freedom? What does it mean to exercise freedom? Um, when we say freedom in the Bible, is that you know, a direct correlation to the freedom that other people are talking about? I think that's a good question for us to ask. So first, why, why is this so difficult? And the answer is, as Paul said in Galatians, He's interpreting part of the Bible allegorically. And 
If you get really interested in studying the Bible um, and really any ancient text, you'll learn that to, to allegorize can be to trivialize, if you will. You have to be very careful uh, with, with allegorizing because what you can do when you make an allegory out of something is you can, you can really make a text, an ancient text, say absolutely anything that you want. You can't. You can take it and make it mean anything uh, because an allegory is, is a story with a hidden meaning and usually uh, some form of, of a moral or political lesson or agenda, if you will. So, you know, we're familiar with stories like Animal Farm or Moby Dick or Aesop's Fables. And these are, these are stories that we look at and we say, these don't necessarily have, they're not anchored in an actual physical historical event. These are stories that were made up to teach us a lesson. Uh, and that's kind of what we tend to think of when we think of an allegory. And so you need to be careful with the Bible because we, we do believe that these are historical events and historians tell us so, right? That these are, these are very valid historical events. And so if you, if you turn them into allegory too much, you can kind of weaken the fact that they are history. Um, Charles Spurgeon, if we were to take a famous person, uh, this is kind of where, where you can get in trouble, is Charles Spurgeon was known to spiritualize, and he would take it a bit far. So there's jokes. I mean, he's kind of this great uh, Baptist uh, pastor from London, and he every time he would read a text, and it would be like, and he stumbled upon the rock, and he would be like, and this is from the Old Testament, and he would just declare the rock was Christ. He stumbled on Christ. Or there's like a loaf of bread served to somebody. The bread was Jesus. And you go, Wow. And then you're like, wait, was it though for sure? And probably one of my favorites um, that I stumbled on was he preached a sermon on the ark, uh, the uh, Noah's ark, right? And the, the rainfall and the, the flood and the animals, like what we're experiencing right now, um, except for the animals. Uh, well, not today. Every once in a while, there's one in here. But, um, but he, here is what he, he came down to. He landed on that that story was about the Holy Spirit. Because in an ark that size, each animal could only see out of one window. And so there was only one source of light. And so it is for the Christian. There's only one source of light. Ooh, right? It's, I mean, mm, that's a bit much. You know, I'm, I'm really glad he wanted to tell us about the Holy Spirit. But I don't think that's what the meaning of the design of Noah's ark was really about. So, this, is, this model of interpreting the Bible has fallen out of style, mostly for good reason. Um, like I said, we want to hold on to the historicity, and we don't want to read in a meaning, uh, a meaning that isn't there. And if, a, and if a good scholar of ancient texts can't look at it and say, you know, that's a possible meaning here, we, we, should, probably be, we should probably be careful. So in, in circles that I'm in, uh, we usually suggest something called grammatical historical interpretation. I've talked about that here at church. Um, if you want to interpret the Bible or the Constitution or any historical text, you would do something. You'd investigate the words, the meaning of the words when they were written, and then you'd investigate the historical context, what's happening at the time that these things were written, and then you would say, are there any parallels to our present day that we can apply this to? That's how you would interpret the text. I talked... Uh, last, last time I preached about uh, a sermon. So here's a historical piece by Jonathan Edwards. And I kind of tried to do that. I didn't get so much into the words, but I said, 
when you look at the historical moment, when you look at what's happening here, behind when this sermon was written, it changes how you interpret these words. If you don't look at the context closely, it can just be jarring. If you understand it, it actually makes more sense. So here in Galatians 4, Paul says that you can read something from Genesis, and he's referencing Genesis 15 to 18, especially Genesis 16, and he's saying you can read it allegorically. And so I want want to tell you a little bit about this story. The bare fact of the story in Genesis is that God has come to Abraham, and, and he's called Abram at first. He's come to Abram, and he's made him a great promise. And this promise is one that our faith is very much anchored in, even as Christians. It's a promise that the Islamic faith is anchored in to this day, and the Jewish faith. So this is a big moment in history. And I want to guide us through this, this allegory, this event, and kind of explore it. After that, I want to, I want to, well, I want to explain it, then explore this concept of freedom inside of it, and then ask how we can apply it. So let's explain it. The Jewish faith, like I said, anchors itself in this lineage of Abraham. So does the, so does the nation of Islam. So does the Jewish faith. The Jewish faith would anchor itself in the lineage of Abraham's son, Isaac. Islam would anchor itself more in the lineage of Ishmael, his other son. Um, And Christianity, according to Paul, does something completely different than both. So what happened historically was God made a promise or a covenant conditioned on his own ability to Abraham. I'm going to have to give you a flyover view because this is chapters and chapters of Genesis. But he makes this promise to Abraham And and you'll notice he doesn't say, Abraham, if you do X, Y, and Z, then I will do X, Y, and Z. He makes him a promise. He says, you're going to be great. You're going to be a nation, and you'll be as numerous as the stars of the sky. He tells him to look look up at the stars of the sky, and of course, Abraham cannot count them. And he says, you'll be as numerous as the stars of the sky. All nations will be blessed through you, and your wife, Sarah, will bear a son in her old age. And Abraham, it says, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And God does this covenant ceremony. This is my first little image for you because I heard people liked the pictures last time. All right, so there's this, uh, there's this covenant ceremony, and, and it's, it's an intense moment. Uh, Abraham, though, here's some key stuff. Abraham falls asleep, and God um, has told him to lay out these animals that have been cut um, and to lay them kind of before him. And Abraham falls asleep. And normally in an in ancient context like this, this wasn't a strange event as it is to us today. In, actually, we have evidence of these ancient cultures doing these kind of ceremonies where somebody who was, a, who was a king or a ruler would bring in somebody subordinate to them, like the Hittites would do this, for example, and would say, look, cut these animals apart, and then they would make them walk through the animals and make a promise to them. And the symbolism of this was, if you don't keep your promise, what happened to these animals will happen to you, okay? And so it's kind of a a terrifying uh, covenant in a way, right? Where it's like, you're walking through these destroyed animals and saying, if if I don't keep my promise, that's what's gonna happen to me. Well, Abraham, he lays them out. He expects to do this, I assume, He falls asleep, and instead of him walking through them, 
he sees this kind of fire imagery of God pass through them, okay? And, it, and it's essentially what, what we believe is happening here is God is saying, I will take on the curse of this covenant if it's broken. And so God makes him this great promise, and then there's this ceremony in which God says, he kind of ratifies this promise and says, I will carry the curse. And Abraham, of course, is going to talk to his wife about this, and in the story, there's several things that happen, but the first thing that happens is Sarah, does, his wife, does not believe that this is possible, and so she comes up with another plan. And later on, even after that plan doesn't work, Sarah is again told that this is going to happen, and she laughs, and in such a way that we believe it was kind of a scoffing, like, come on, laugh. But, but Sarah and, and she and Abraham work together on this. They come up with a plan to get it done, and so they decide there's no way they're having kids because they are too old, which is true. They are. And so they think God can't keep this promise. There's no way. But we have a plan. So they have a slave girl named Hagar. And she is of age that she can have a child. And so Sarah says, you know, she works it out in her mind. She says, she, you know, is like bonded herself to me. So she belongs to me. If she has a child, I will raise the child. It'll be as if it's our own, and we'll, we'll make this happen. In other words, the, the promise, the covenant that God made with them was conditioned on his ability, but they made a plan that was conditioned on their own ability. And so they moved faith. When, when Abraham first heard God's promise and believed it, he, he had placed faith in God that he could do an impossible thing, and they've now moved faith over onto themselves, right, and have said, we will achieve this because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem possible. I don't feel like this could ever happen. Did that work out? It did not. It didn't work out. Well, Hagar did have a child, and Abraham seems to, to love this child and be committed to this child, but that child Ishmael, at some point later on, um, kind of turns on his brother and Hagar and Sarah. There's jealousy. There's trouble. It doesn't work. And spiritually, it doesn't work because God is not glorified in this plan. God is not trusted in this plan. It's Abraham and, and Sarah have figured it out. And God does not reward this. In fact, he, he just, he doesn't. But not only does he not reward it, he also doesn't shift away from his previous promise. So guess what? Sarah, in her elder years, gets pregnant, and they have a child, and this is the child that God promised, and his name is Isaac, and Ishmael and Isaac have conflict. Hagar and Sarah have conflict. Hagar and Ishmael are driven away, and God promises to care for them, but tells them their lives are going to have continued conflict. Okay, so this is, that, that's a flyover view you could read Genesis 15 to 18 and get a lot more detail than that. But clearly, this, this is a big moment in religious history. I mean, like I said, there are th the three major religions, three of the major religions, anchor their story in this very story. And so Paul is saying that this story is embedded with some meaning. There's a hidden meaning. God has made a landmark promise here there is meaning embedded in the responses of Abraham, of Sarah. 
And we believe that most Jewish people believed that there was meaning embedded in it too. Um, in a sense, Jewish leaders read it as part allegory. They didn't read it as if it weren't a historical story, but they saw a hidden meaning under it. And the meaning that they saw under it was that because Isaac was the child of promise and Israelites were descended from Isaac, they viewed themselves as therefore heirs of God's promise, the rightful heirs of their land, the rightful heirs of their faith. And this is precisely what's causing the problem in the church at Galatia. Leaders from Jerusalem had come. They're Christians. They'd accepted Jesus. And they were skeptical of non-Jewish Christians who here are not following all of their traditions. They were open to Jesus as a savior figure, but they're concerned that these Galatian Christians are coming in and they're not upholding all of the laws of Judaism. They're not fully converting in to Judaism. So they're basing this on their spiritual understanding that they were the inheritors of God's promise to Abraham. They were Isaac's people and they had to control that. They had to make sure that other people who came in kind of followed everything correctly. And, and Paul is approaching them, assuming that they believe that this is somewhat allegorical, and he is about to flip the allegory on its head to them right here. And so let me read this to you again. Listen for it. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, that's these Jewish Christians, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, according to their plan, right? While the son of the free woman was born through promise, God's ability, God's word. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants, one from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Now Anybody Jewish, like Jewish religious leaders reading this at this time is nodding their head. They're going, yeah, okay, sure, no problem. But then Paul says, she, Hagar, corresponds to present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. Now, right there, these people would have gone, what? Excuse me? Jerusalem? Hagar, the slave woman, corresponds to present Jerusalem. That's very specific. If he just said Jerusalem, now Jerusalem was once Canaanite, and everybody knew that, and they may have kind of gone, okay, uh, you know, previous Jerusalem. But no, current, present Jerusalem, this is the center of the Jewish faith. This is where the temple of the God of Israel is located. That's where these Christian Jewish people had come from. This is where they believed that Jesus was going to return and rebuild his regime, these are Christians. They believe Jesus is going to return there to Israel, to Jerusalem. And Paul is saying present-day Jerusalem in the allegory is the slave woman that needs to be cast out. Whew. And then he says this, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it's written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more 
than those of the one who has a husband. And we read this from Isaiah. And he says, now brothers, now remember, he's talking to Galatian Christians. He said, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time when he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we're not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Basically, he's saying to them, the Christians from Jerusalem are persecuting you, and you need to cast them out. Whew. That is a heavy hitter. And how many of the people in Jerusalem appreciated this message, right? How many of them said, like, thank you, you have stuck to the gospel, and I like it? Zero. Nobody liked it at all, except the Galatians. He basically says to these people who read this, this letter in the Galatian church, there is, or to the Jewish people who would have read this letter in the Galatian church, sure, there's a hidden allegorical meaning in Genesis 16. Some people are part of God's promise and some are part of an anti-covenant of human effort, but that covenant doesn't follow a bloodline. It doesn't follow kind of who's the most devoted. It doesn't come by your birth. It doesn't come by your national identity. It comes by one thing, and that is by faith. And how can you tell if somebody has faith? They receive grace and anchor their soul in grace alone. The people of the promise, the free, believe God and trust in him. The slave uh, in the allegory is the one who believes that by taking matters into their own hands, they will receive God's promises. So you, Paul is saying, from Jerusalem, you who rejected Jesus, you who are still trying to say, like, I keep myself close by following laws like circumcision and getting all the feasts right and getting all the stuff done, checking all the boxes, you are not free, you are slaves, and you have become persecutors. You were right about the hidden meaning, but the hidden meaning convicts you. You are missing freedom. The very thing you thought you had, you do not have. A story came out in the Atlantic this week that was kind of interesting. And um, though not about spiritual things, it reminded me of this a little bit. And so there were these kids whose parents had died, and they had, they'd had this house that their parents had built, kind of this off-grid out in the middle of uh, Vermont somewhere, and they, and they saw it on Airbnb. Somebody had bought it and fixed it up, and they went, oh my gosh, we got to go back to the old house. And then they had this, this mixed emotional response because they got back to the house, and they started remembering that, that their time in the house wasn't always good. And so they tell this story about their parents who they had looked at their society, they'd looked at the, the United States of America back in the day, and had said, we don't like the way things are going, this isn't good, They're gonna, people are going to take away our freedoms, this is bad. And they moved out to the country to build a self-sustaining lifestyle where they could be free from the tyrannies of what was happening in the country at the time. And these kids who, who moved out there with their parents, they reflected and they said, but here's the trouble. 
We got out there and it was hard to live on the land and our family had conflict and we had all these issues and, we, and it wasn't pleasant and none of, we all came to resent the house. <laughs> and, and he had this quote where he said, no matter how hard you try to escape the future, the future will find you anyway. He was kind of, he was kind of telling us all, you can try to escape, but you can't. And the missing element of the Atlantic article was it was all externals, Right? But it was kind of this idea, if you, if you were to spiritualize this idea, you would say, if you think the freedoms are all like the problems outside of you, you are missing the truth. The freedom issues are inside of you. Even when you escape to the mountains all alone, just you and your family, you will still have enslavements. You'll be enslaved to something. Without a God that transcends our earthly existence without deep trust in that God in your innermost being, faith like Abraham had, no strategy will bring the freedom and safety we desire and need. And that's kind of what this allegory is, is getting at, that people, they thought that just by being descended from Isaac and following all the rules that they had guaranteed their freedom, but the freedom was an inward reality that Abraham had, and they had lost it. So let's talk a little bit more about freedom. What is this freedom? How do you get it? What does it mean for us? And how, what does it mean to stand for it? Okay. First, the, the freedom passages in Galatians get pumped a lot. I've, I've seen Galatians 5.1 lately more than ever. So if you watch the news You'll inevitably see some kind of sign, some, one of the Christians out there, and you go, ah, there's a, there's a Christian. It's for, Christ, you know, for, for freedom, God has set us free. You know, do not submit to a yoke of slavery. And this could be, uh, there could be a number of things that this could be about, okay? And, and I think that's a result of years and years of tying this freedom to the freedom ideals of our country. So there, now you can put up your first slide. So this is old, and so this is a church's slide. This is, this is a church slide about teaching the book of Galatians. And there's a, you can see something, right? Like there seems to have been an American theme going into this, right? You can tell by the flag and all the colors. And so when Galatians is taught as kind of this, merit, like the freedom in Galatians is the same freedom we're talking about when we're talking about, you know, our constitution, it's, it's embedded, it's embedded visually, it's embedded ideologically, and we've been taught this for, for years and years and years. My second one is new and, and a lot more kind of clear. This, this is kind of coming from our, our government. One nation under God, and there, there it is, Galatians 5.1, right? Like, okay, it feels like very, very connected. Is it the same? Now, I'm going to stop talking about America right now, and I'm just going to tell you, as we talk about freedom, and you think about like the freedom ideal within our republic, which I'm not saying is bad, but I just want you to take that shoe of freedom that we're going to learn about in Galatians and say, does it fit? Are we talking about the same thing? I'll let you decide. So back to our questions. Freedom. How do you get it? What does it mean for your life? What would it mean to stand for it? How do you get it? If we're, I mean, it's an interesting thing to think. Galatians 5.1, this, this 
text that we kind of see attached here to this one nation under God ideal, I mean, it's directly after this Hagar-Sarah story, and that's its context. That's what it's drawn out of. That's what it's explaining, right? It's, it's giving you an application out of that. So we must get our answer out of this kind of crazy story from Genesis of what does freedom mean? So how do you get the freedom that was talked about in Genesis? You, you get it by doing one thing, believing that God will do what he's promised to do. This is the point of the Abraham connection. Abraham is our patriarch because he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, that's a big statement because righteousness would normally mean blamelessness. And we can look at Abraham and he and his wife tried to like, they went against the covenant immediately after God gave it to them, right? So he's not a blameless man. He didn't have blamelessness, but his deep trust in God was counted to him as righteousness. This is a little bit like, I was trying to think of what's, what's a parallel I could draw here. I, I'm, there are no perfect ones, but what about like an honorary degree? You didn't fulfill the requirements, but the result has been yielded within you despite your shortcomings, despite your lack of knowledge, despite your lack of work. The result is true within you, so you're given the status of the degree. It's a little bit like that. So that's how you get this freedom. It's you, you receive it. You trust. You look to God and his ability to keep his promises and you accept. That is how you get the freedom. Now, what does it mean for your life? It means you can be inwardly transformed. Abraham, when God reaffirms his promise in Genesis after the whole Hagar situation, after they tried that, then God comes back to Abraham, reaffirms his promise that they're going to have a child. Um, and Abraham, when he hears this, when he hears the reaffirmation where God comes back right after he broke the covenant and goes, look, I'm still going to do this, Abraham falls on his face and begins to laugh. And I think this is a picture of freedom. This is an inward letting it go, this inward submission, this inward trust, this freedom and joy that comes from saying, God is faithful even when I am not. And it is an incredible thing. And here's a question to ask, like, so What's the result? Did Abraham's life get easier? Well, if you read on in the book of Genesis, you'd know we're about to get like Sodom and Gomorrah's next. There's a whole bunch of conflict and trouble coming next. His life doesn't necessarily get smooth, right? So this freedom is more internal and it transforms the way you walk through the difficulties of life. And that's opposed to how we often think of freedom. I think for myself, when I often think of freedom, I think of freedom from external restraints and inhibitions that hold me down in the hopes that in freedom from those things, if they would go away, then I would feel better internally. That is the exact reverse of what the Bible means by freedom. This freedom starts inwardly with a deep trust in the Lord and his ability to keep his promises and you can walk through anything 
when you have that freedom. I'm not saying that external freedom isn't a valid desire or goal. I'm not saying that freedom from something like slavery is not a worthwhile fight. I'm not saying that freedom from unjust laws is not a worthwhile cause. It is. In fact, what I'm saying is, if you're going to be the type of person with the inward vitality to work toward any of that, you're going to need this other freedom deep within your soul to go through all of the roadblocks it's going to take to get that other type of freedom. And a lot of people never get that type of freedom, so you're going to have to have a freedom and a hope in your heart that will sustain you even if you do not get it. The scripture teaches us that this freedom from the Jerusalem above, as he calls it, the, the city of God that is of above, that transcends, that's a transcendent reality. That that is the first priority, and it's guaranteed to those who will receive God's covenant. And it sustains those who get external freedom and those who don't. You need inward freedom more than you need external freedom you need inward freedom to fight for external freedom. Now you might, if you're an astute listener, say, uh, I think you've begun to stretch the context of the book of Galatians, Andy. You're talking about things that sound more modern. Well, where, what was the Galatians situation? If you look into their situation, they are, a, they are under Roman occupation, and Paul never once gives them any tips on what to do about that, not once. History tells us their society slowly assimilated away, it just assimilated into other societies. They were a Greek Hellenized group of Celtic people. Their, their country is now part of modern-day Turkey, um, or their city is now part of modern-day Turkey. And there's no direct path of like the Galatians ended up here. They all just kind of blended out into other places. And... So what I'm saying is if what Paul was saying to them was true, that they had this inward freedom, they never got the external freedom. They never got political freedom or anything like that. They never got it. They assimilated away into other cultures. But if they had the internal freedom, which seems to be Paul's priority, then they got everything that Abraham had. Everything. And Abraham, by the way, never saw the promise come true in this life. I think we need to be committed to an application that applies to all people. When we talk about freedom in the Bible, it needs to apply to Galatians, whose, you know, whose city just kind of assimilated away. It should apply to Americans. It should apply to every single culture in the world. There should not be an interpretation that only works here or for Jews or for Galatians. It should transcend all cultures, challenge them all, comfort them all, and this inward freedom that can help you face any external circumstance is exactly that. And that freedom, Paul says, belongs to the Jerusalem that's above. Jerusalem. This, this, is, you know, this is a contested city in the Middle East to us now. It pops up back in, the, back in the days of Abraham when Melchizedek comes to him. He's the priest of Salem, which is probably Jerusalem, the city of peace the city of peace that's of above, if God has declared peace to you and invited you into that city, the city of peace that's above, then you can receive it because he is faithful and he offers it conclusively in Jesus. Now consider, just, just think of some things. We're going to have to do a lightning round on Jesus, but this is really important. 
Before Jesus was tried, we, we know, most of us know, he went through a trial and was condemned and was crucified. When his disciples were about to experience the least amount of external freedom they had ever experienced in their lives, where their, their rabbi was about to be arrested and about to be hung on a shameful cross and killed, and they were about to run for their lives, this is what Jesus said to them. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. How does the world give peace? Outward security, getting rid of the inhibitions or, or, or whatever oppressions, right? Casting them out, that's how the world gives peace. But freedom, this freedom that comes from Christ gives true peace, the untroubled heart. How's your heart, right? That would be a question to start asking. Is my heart troubled? Am I afraid? Am I easily moved to anger? Am I unsettled? Do I feel like I have nothing firm underneath my feet? The invitation of Jesus is to peace and to freedom. And the question that this allegory puts before us is, will you trust him? I think of the woman of Proverbs, and actually I love, I love this little statement, she laughs at the days to come. To me, that sounds like Abraham. I mean, that's someone who looks for, what, what do you, what's true about the days to come for us? You don't know what's coming. You don't know what's going to happen. The godly woman of Proverbs, Abraham, they're able to laugh. Why is that? Because they have an inward, anchored hope. They have freedom. So how do you stand for freedom? How do you resist the yoke of slavery that's being talked about here in Galatians? In Jesus, I think we have both our example and our anchor. So any standing or resisting should be Christ-like. I've heard Christians in the last year especially say we need to use their strategies against them for once. Is that Christ-like? Is that how Christ offered freedom to us? Or I've seen you know, and felt within our church and our, our Christian community this sense of like, I'm not going to try anymore. I give up. I'm done. I'm burned out. That's not Christ-like either. He moved forward for our good, though it cost him dearly. Consider Jesus as he's on his way into his darkest hour. Here's the most free human being that ever walked the planet. Have you ever thought about that? As he carries his cross, this is the God of the universe walking among the things that he's created. He could have, as he said, commanded his angelic host to do anything that he wanted. And when he's taunted, why doesn't he fight back? Because he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, I'd fight, but it's not. And he carries his cross and he sets it up and he reaches out his hands and he's nailed to the cross. This is the freest man we've ever seen. He doesn't have to fight. He doesn't have to give you a dose of your own medicine. He can stretch his arms out. Why? Because he trusts 
that in three days, he will rise from the dead by the power of God. He knows he's good, right? So he can suffer for our sake. True freedom can look death and oppression in the face and say, you can't take my freedom. Freedom is at peace in all circumstances. True freedom invites others in and exposes the darkness with light. Look at Jesus on the cross again. What is he doing while he's there? He's suffering. His, his literal, he is, he is nailed to a cross. The least free-looking person is the most free. He is forgiving. He is transforming. Roman soldiers are looking at him and saying, this must have been the Son of God right? And he's looking at the thief to his side and saying, surely you will be with me in paradise with the most external condemnation and oppression on his shoulders. He gives, he forgives. His heart is anchored in his father. And none of us is capable to do this as Jesus did it. We can follow in his steps. We're called to follow in his steps. But for us, true freedom requires that we anchor our souls in him. He's made us more promises, right? He's promised he would return. He would make all things new. He's promised not only that, but the Jerusalem that's above is going to descend. This is a crazy, crazy thought. This is crazier than an old woman getting pregnant, isn't it? The, the Jerusalem from above will descend upon the earth. And behold, I will make all things new. He said that. He's promised his kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what's our job? We pray for that. We just pray for it. He offers himself as our daily bread you know what this bread means, by the way? It means a lot of things, but this points back to the covenant of Abraham, whose body was broken for our failure to keep our end of the covenant. Jesus's. And I guarantee you, when his disciples who knew their Bibles saw him break the bread, that one day when they looked back on that, they saw, they said, oh, he was torn. He was torn apart so that we could be received. And he offers his blood as our forgiveness that can empower us to forgive our debtors. This is why Paul says, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Why would, why would you go back to any other ceremony to, to cleanse you and to make you right with God when his blood has been poured out? That's what it means to not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It means to come empty-handed and receive what Christ has given to you and to place your trust deeply in him. In other words, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. That's freedom. It's internal. It's eternal. And it will change the way you live. Let's pray before we go to the table. Father, I long for our church. I long for myself to experience this freedom that can stand 
unshaken in any circumstance. It is for freedom that you set us free. I pray that we would not be bound again to any yoke of slavery, whether it's getting it right or fighting to win, whatever it might be. I pray that we would be free of heart, that we would laugh at the days to come because we see your body broken for us and your blood spilled. Give us that peace by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name. We're going to worship now in three ways. We're going to have the Lord's table available here. I'll be up in just a moment to serve each and every one of you. And and what does it take to, to receive this? I mean, the answer is one thing, that you would lay down all your other claims to freedom, peace, security, and righteousness, and just receive Jesus alone. If you can do that, this table's for you. And he offers himself to you. We're going to sing together, and as we sing, this idea is that we would proclaim to him our trust and our love and our hope. If you can do that, do it with all of your heart, however you feel led. And if you need to just listen in, that's okay too. Giving's in the back. That's how you help us do our thing and tell people about the freedom that comes in Christ and, you know, maybe fix the roof. And uh, from there, we'll, uh, we'll take the Lord's Supper, which will lead into dinner together, where is where we hope that we connect and encourage one another in grace. As we lead into this, we're going to take two minutes of silence. And this two minutes is just for you to ask that question, um, what does my soul anchor in? Do I have this freedom? And you can talk to God about these things. You don't have to come to God when you figured it out. In fact, God tells us that when we come to him with our sins, which is all the ways that we fall short, all the ways that we don't anchor ourselves in him, that he's faithful and just. Not only will he forgive us of our sins, but he'll cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. And he'll accept us, just like with Abraham. Right after he breaks the covenant, God reinstates him. And the same can be true for you. Just confess with your mouth and believe with your heart and you'll be saved. So I'll pray us into this time of confession. Father, open our eyes to see our sin, not that we'd be depressed, but so that we could be relieved, so that you could take our burdens upon yourself, that we would see them put to death on the cross, and that we could have hope, that we might trust you more, follow you more, serve you with all of our hearts. So lead us now as we confess before you.